Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. I'm Ido Vok in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 17th of September. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. All right, listeners, I am back. Ido is back. We have a very exciting guest today. But first, we are going to delve in to a very brief conversation on what we think was the big news this week, which was this announced coalition, security coalition between Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States, which has the very awkward acronym that we will be pronouncing as AUKUS. Ido, what are your thoughts? I'm, I'm still not sure if that's how you meant to pronounce it. but uh, It's so, almost certainly not, but onward. Okay. AUKUS is a new security treaty that was announced by the British, American, and Australian governments. It covers a whole bunch of issues like cyber cap- capability and artificial intelligence, But the most controversial aspect of it has been that Australia is ditching a contract that it had signed in 2016 to buy 12 diesel-powered submarines from France. And instead, it's going to build nuclear-powered submarines for the first time using American technology, and so becoming only the seventh nation in the world to have nuclear submarines. And we just stress that's not submarines with nuclear missile capability, but nuclear-powered submarines, which have lots of advantages over diesel-powered submarines. In particular, they can stay underwater a lot longer, whereas diesel submarines need to surface at particular points to use their diesel motors and so recharge the batteries that they use when they're underwater. I, I can perhaps let you speak about the American angle, but uh, I can I can speak about the French angle because I wrote a, a piece on the reaction from France to this. It was one of the most dramatic reactions from anything that I have seen from France diplomatically. Like it was just, I, I shouldn't say dramatic. It was, they were clearly, clearly quite upset. Um, why don't you speak a bit about the, the fallout, the French fallout? Well, so there, there are a few things you can say. The first is that the Americans, the British and the Australians did not get any, give any warning to the French about this. The first the French learned about this was from the press reports a few hours before the announcement was due. Now, irrespective of the merits of the agreement itself, and you can quite clearly see why Australia, given the context in particular with China of, of, of this agreement, which doesn't mention China explicitly, but which is quite clearly intended to codify a growing anti-China alliance in the Indo-Pacific region. You can quite clearly see why the French would be very angry that they were not given advance warning. And this this is on several levels. So the first is obviously commercial. So the, the deal was worth, I think, about 50 billion Australian dollars when it was signed. And it's about 90 billion now because of cost overruns and delays and so on. And so the shipbuilder, which was contracted to build the boats, estimates that the contract supported about 500 jobs. 
And it's also got the kind of diplomatic and strategic prestige of, of the agreement. And what Australia has essentially done is said that France is just not a significant enough player to justify this contract. And instead, they would rather rely on the US and have a closer alliance with the US at the expense of, of the French. And, and the French have really been blindsided by this. They given no warning. The French um, defence minister, Jean-Yves Le Drian, issued a blistering communique using very, very strong language uh, in the middle of the night, Paris time. They said it was a decision contrary to the letter and the spirit of Franco-Australian cooperation, said it was sidelining a European partner and ally. And then in a radio interview, Le Drian said it was a stab in the back. And so, you know, it's they've really been blindsided. And I think most of the anger from the French has actually been directed towards the Americans rather than the Australians. Surprise! Uh, and, and for them, this is really another example after Afghanistan of basically what they perceive as essentially an America first foreign policy, although it's led by uh, by Joe Biden and, you know, he said America's back and so on. But really, they, they just see this as America just acting unilaterally within its own interests at the expense of, of its perceived allies. So maybe you can talk a bit more about the picture from, from Washington. Sure. I think I think from the, the Biden administration or like the, the Biden Washington perspective, right? So so I, I also saw that France or that Le Drouin said, oh, this is basically likened it to Donald Trump. And I, I think the way in which it is like the Trump administration is that the Biden administration, like the Trump administration, clearly sees China as something to be to be countered, right? Or as, as, as something, as a country that the United States needs to be poised to, to challenge if necessary. Beyond that, it's actually not a Trump-esque move at all in that it, it goes through a multilateral coalition, which Trump was famously not fond of. I actually think it's quite a Biden move, uh, a move that could have been predicted from, although I did not predict it, from the Biden team in that, um, as I note in a piece that is out today or, or should be out by the time this podcast goes out, Kurt Campbell and Rush Doshi, who are two of the sort of China or Asia hands in the Biden administration, wrote this foreign affairs essay back in January before the Biden administration even came into office, basically saying that rather than having one coalition that works on everything vis-a-vis China, you can be flexible and have lots of different coalitions, right? So maybe sometimes you have the G7 plus other democracies, maybe sometimes you have the Quad. And I think this is an extension of that thinking, right? And and you can kind of see this reflected in, in um, the White House response to the outrage from the French, which was to say, well, we're, we're in other groups with the French, right? There, there are other coalitions that we have with the French, which is true. And I think the Biden administration is uh, from from the Washington perspective, it's, well, we want to counter China. This is a group that has made clear that it wants to counter China in the same way that we do, right? Whereas I think there was some difference or some daylight between France and the United States and the G7 on this, on China. But ultimately, the problem with <laughs> with managing lots of different coalitions is that it's not like the friction from one larger coalition goes away, right? These are all like France is still, you still need France as a partner. And so you kind of can't say, well, you know, it doesn't matter if your feelings were hurt because you're outside this coalition. That's not realistically, just not how it's going to go. There was supposed to be like this gala in Washington celebrating Franco-American naval cooperation that was canceled by the French. Like they're clearly very upset about this. And the United States does need France as a partner, right? Just they're one of the largest players in the European Union. You know, they're the UN Security Council just in the world. And so while I think this move made sense for, for the Biden administration, it made sense for Washington, they're clearly going to need to find a way to make it right with France. And I don't actually know what that way is at this point. My sense is that the French would probably understand why the Australians want nuclear submarines rather than diesel-powered ones. And in fact, the ones that the French were going to give to the Australians or sell to the Australians were diesel derivatives of 
a nuclear submarines that they're building for themselves, the Barracuda class submarines. And I think the the French understand why the Australians would want basically superior armaments, given the worsening context of relations with China that there have been that there has been since 2016 when the contract was signed. Like I think the French understand that. What they are livid about is that they were given no warning. They were essentially sidelined. They this contract. I mean. Maybe it'll go somewhere, but it doesn't really seem to. It's just been abandoned. It. I think that's what they are. They are angry about, and it's hard. It's hard not to sympathise. No, I, I agree, and we'll, we'll we'll continue to watch the fallout from that, but not right now, because right now we are turning to the aforementioned exciting guest, who is not really a guest at all, because she is in fact a new member of the New Statesman team. It is senior editor international Megan Gibson. Megan, welcome, and thank you for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Well, we are actually doubly excited because previously, if Canada were to come up, we would just have me, a poser who lived there for a few years as a as a kid. But you are a genuine Canadian here with us to discuss the upcoming Canadian elections. I am a genuine Canadian. A genuine Canadian. We got one for you, listeners. <laughs> so to start out, let's just suppose that a listener has not been following the story of the okay. of the snap elections. Can you just briefly? Get, get us up to speed. So six weeks ago, Justin Trudeau decided that he was going to call a snap election for September 20th, uh, this coming Monday. He kind of framed it as he had a minority government and he needed to get a majority in order to push his COVID recovery package over the line. That was his his kind of pitch. No one has bought that. Um, everyone, basically, since the spring, Ottawa's worst kept secret has been that there was going to be a snap election sometime in the autumn as soon as polls looked favorable for Trudeau. Polls hit a favorable point and Trudeau called the election. And since he called the election, it's proved, well, it hasn't proved quite yet, but it's looking like it's been a massive miscalculation. The polls have closed quite rapidly. Um, the opposition leader, Aaron O'Toole, for the Conservatives, has risen. They are now neck and neck. Lots of times you'll see in the, over the last few weeks, O'Toole has edged out Trudeau. Uh, it's still really unclear who will actually be prime minister after Monday's election, but it's certainly not looking like Trudeau will get a majority that he he had counted on. It, it reminds me so much of, and maybe you can tell me that this is not a good comparison, but it reminds me so much of the snap elections that Theresa May called back in 2017, when which, you know, things seemed to be going her way and she was going to strengthen her, her sort of grip on power and ended up sort of worse off than before. Uh, do you think that's a fair parallel or is this unique and, and Trudeauian? <laughs> no, I think that is really fair. Obviously, it's not what Trudeau thought would happen. He definitely had in mind, you know, Stephen Harper did it with his minority government in 2011, and he landed a majority. So that was a gamble. His father. His father yes, his father, Pierre, he did that as well, and um, came back with a majority. So he definitely wasn't hoping to follow down Theresa May's footsteps. But um, with how things have panned out, that does seem to be kind of the direction it's headed. Can you tell us a bit more about sort of the main players in this drama? Obviously, there's Prime Minister Trudeau, but but you know, can you tell us a bit more about Aaron O'Toole and um, maybe also a bit more about Jagmeet Singh and how he fits into this? There's actually a lot of new players and new faces on the stage at the moment. I mean, Aaron O'Toole has only been the leader of the Conservatives since last August, so he's very untested. And I think that's kind of 
what gave Trudeau some confidence that, you know, voters didn't know him, voters wouldn't really go for him. That hasn't really proven to be the case so far. Polls indicate that actually people are willing to give O'Toole a chance. He's kind of put a more uh, centrist, friendly face on the Conservatives, where we see in the past leaders have been, you know, maybe hewing to more towards the right of a centre-right party. So I think he's really kind of, you know, capitalized on the fact that Trudeau has been in power for six years and he's really kind of landed some some blows in the places where people kind of think Trudeau's, you know, failed. So has Jagmeet Singh. So he is the leader of the New Democratic Party. That's Canada's third party, although it is actually the fourth place party at the moment after a not great election performance in 2019. But um, Jagmeet Singh, he's definitely the most probably charismatic leader running at the moment. Polls indicate that people really, um, he really resonates with people. They find him the most trustworthy. So far, that hasn't really translated into a huge bump in support for his party. But we'll see how, how that plays out. He definitely is looking to capture more seats than he did in 2019. And then you have the other smaller parties. There's the Greens, which under Annamie Paul, who's also a new leader, she's only been in place since 2020, has actually really struggled for the last, even just over the summer. The party has uh, lost one of its MPs who crossed the floor to the Liberals over internal strife. But she's actually, I think, while she was previously untested on, on the national stage, in the English leader language debate, she really kind of proved, I think, her worth. She was or did a, gave a really, really strong performance and I think actually kind of recaptured a lot of, of support for, towards the Greens. So we'll see how, how that actually ends up translating in, in the election. This has been quite a short campaign. So the election was called, I think, on the 15th of August, and mm-hmm. the election is going to be on the 20th of September, so just over a month, which is really quite, you know, if you consider the uh, that there was no notice and then the, the campaign began immediately. It's a very It's a very short campaign. Can you just talk about the main issues and the main debates that there have been during the campaign and perhaps why they seem to have led to a conservative surge in the polls. Climate change has been obviously a very big topic in this campaign. We're coming off the back of a summer that saw record heat waves in British Columbia and Alberta also are dealing with um, fire season. So there is a lot of concern about climate change and each party's kind of platform and policy. Trudeau has really suffered a bit in this, in that he's been in power for six years, he hasn't met his targets. All of the other leaders have really kind of been able to to castigate him for, for that. O'Toole hasn't done great in this because the conservative platform on this is their targets are still quite low. I think it's 30% of lowering of, of the emissions from 2005 levels, which is just everyone acknowledges that that's just not ambitious enough. But there has been no other really clear winner in this regard. I think it doesn't seem that any one party has really kind of put forward a climate platform that has really pushed things over the line in terms of where the electorate is going to go. Obviously, another big issue has been the pandemic. Canada is actually doing quite well when it comes to vaccination, although there is a fourth wave 
at the moment. And actually, this has kind of helped O'Toole a lot because there is a lot of anger at Trudeau for calling the election and making people head to the polls during a fourth wave. Um, People view it as a very cynical move. One of the first questions Trudeau received during the debate was, why have you called this election? And he's been asked it repeatedly by the press, and he's never really given a satisfactory answer. Does his argument that he needs a majority to to govern effectively and to, you know, steer Canada out of the pandemic, does that hold water? Has he really been hobbled by his lack of majority in parliament? Or is it really just a kind of as as you've suggested, some people see it as a cynical move, you know, egotistical power grabbing. Well, it's, it's it's hard to make the case for him that he needed a majority government since he can't really even make the case for himself about why he needed to call the election. He hasn't really been been able to point to too many policies that really he has been been hobbled by. Jagmeet Singh, because the NDP does support Trudeau's minority government, and he has actually pushed, I think, Trudeau to go a bit further in terms of, you know, extending payouts to people for economic relief. So, but it's really hard, I think, for Trudeau to make the argument that that he wouldn't be able to actually push recovery over the line without having an election. What's at stake in this election? If Trudeau loses his bet, let's say Aaron O'Toole becomes the new prime minister, what what does that look like for Canada? It's interesting. And there there are lots of people who will say that Canada's parties are all operating from a very narrow kind of liberal framework. Canadian voters tend to always kind of hew towards the centre. So centre left, centre right, you're not talking about a radical structural change in who in who's going to be prime minister. Obviously, there'll be slightly different policies. That, but I think in terms of actually for the pandemic, it's hard to imagine anything radically changing. I think the big thing that we would be looking at if O'Toole became prime minister is actually what that is then going to mean for climate change targets, because that is, especially with COP26 on the horizon, I mean, that is going to be only an increasing issue. Obviously, the Conservatives have a very big support base in Alberta, and that's where oil and gas it kind of just runs that economy. So it's it's something that is very divisive especially in that area. So it's just, it's one of those things that's going to be, I think, one of the big issues on the horizon, the big problems you could see arising with an O'Toole government. Trudeau was elected in November 2015. So he's been in power for six years. And about a year later, there was quite a big change in American politics. Um, How would you say the, particularly the the Trump era, let's be honest, how did that Mm -hmm. affect Canadian politics? Has there been a kind of copycat effect in Canada or have ca- or have Canadians viewed what's happened down south with shock and dismay and you know they, they don't want any of that being replicated I would say that yes and yes <laughs> both both things are are true we've seen in Canada a rise in polarization a rise in not necessarily within the own politics but a lot of you know Trump's pet, ideas, I guess, has started to kind of catch on north of the border, you know, whether that's waves of more vocal anti-immigration sentiment, waves of COVID skepticism, you know, the trickle-down effect of then anti-vaxxers kind of becoming a small but vocal problem in certain parts of the country. But then I would say that largely the majority of Canadians did look at Trump's presidency with 
horror. Um, it it was tough for for Canada. There's obviously trade was inf- affected. Trump, you know, threw NAFTA into question during the pandemic with closing of the border, and that's. I mean, that's a huge impact for, for Canadians, whether that's moving freely across the border or trade. It's it's just one of those things that just had so many ripple effects in different ways that, I mean, you do have to kind of hand it to Trudeau. He, I think, kind of navigated a very difficult relationship quite well. I mean, I think we say with, with many countries that, oh, that's a close ally of the United States. But with Canada, it's just, it's so, like, the two are so inextricably linked. And at the risk of sounding like an American exceptionalist, I think that's particularly true for the Canadian side, right? Like, it's, it's just mm-hmm. such an important partner that what do you do, right, when when the president comes into power and decides to to question that partnership, which basically nobody questions, right? Because it's the US and yeah. Canada. Yeah. Um, but, but this brings me to something that I wanted to ask you before we got to our listener question, which is, you know, you brought up climate change. Are there other foreign policy issues? Not that climate change is exclusively foreign policy, but it does fall uh, under that remit. Um, are there other foreign policy issues that you think would be thrown into question if Trudeau loses this election? This campaign has been largely about domestic issues. I mean, Trudeau has been criticized heavily from, from all the party leaders about you know, his approach to evacuating Canadians in Afghanistan, but that is not obviously unique to Trudeau's government. Um, Western governments around the world face the same similar criticisms. The one foreign policy issue that's really come up is Canada's, you know, standoff with China. And this stems from Canada detaining a Huawei executive in 2018 and China retaliating by detaining two Canadians, a businessman and a diplomat, um, both called Michael, and they're known in the Canadian press as the two Michaels. And that's something that Atul has really kind of tried to drive home against Trudeau, that he has not resolved that situation and that these two men in China are still detained for ostensibly no reason. It is hard, though, to imagine a conservative government with O'Toole having the same sort of presence on the world stage that Trudeau has. And maybe this is unfair, as we said earlier, that O'Toole is still untested. But just thinking back to Trudeau's predecessor, Stephen Harper, he had a much, much more different kind of approach to Canada as a presence in international relations. He really did focus on what was happening at home, where Trudeau you know, right from the beginning in 2015, was very, very keen to project Canada as a major player on the world stage. And has done it, right? I mean, to, mm. to a certain extent, I think that is how Canada is thought of now in a way that it wasn't before. Absolutely. I think, I think you could quite plausibly make a case for Trudeau as the most prominent progressive politician in the world at the moment. Lots of Canadians do not feel that way. I mean, there is quite a feeling within, you know, Liberal supporters and NDP supporters and Green supporters that Trudeau is, you know, kind of a, a false progressive. Yeah, he's, he's a, a neoliberal with like cool socks, right? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And and there's a classic, you know, saying about the liberals that they campaign on the left and govern on the right. So it, it's not an actually a big departure for the late li- leader of the Liberal Party, excuse me, to to be seen this way. But I think just there's a bit of irony in the 
way that Trudeau projects himself internationally that is just really not not recognized at home. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's now time for a section that our colleagues at the New Statesman podcast like to call. You ask us. So we were just talking about the center left and the left and now switching gears slightly to the center right and right because our question this week, which comes to us via Twitter.com is what's your gut feeling? Liberal minority government? How big of a spoiler will the PPC be for the CPC in close writings? So that's how how much of a spoiler will the People's Party of Canada be for the Conservative Party? Well, I'll start with the first part, gut feeling. I would not bet any money, any of my own money on this election. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's really hard to say. I mean, the polls, they're neck and neck. I haven't seen really any polls that were outside the margin of error definitively for either... O'Toole or Trudeau. So it's, I mean, definitely another liberal minority government is possible, a conservative minority government is possible, or there could be a huge surprise. I mean, so I don't, I don't have a gut feeling. I'm, I'm really expecting to be surprised. The question about the People's Party, the People's Party is really actually quite interesting. So it's a right-wing party. Canada's, I guess, closest thing to, to the far right. The, the founder of the People's Party and its leader, Maxime Bernier, he was actually a conservative MP. And funnily enough, he was foreign minister for about a year in Harper's government. But he, he left the party in 2018, formed his own party that was further to the right. And, you know, they, they, they take the stance of anti-immigration, that 
during the pandemic, they've been very anti-lockdown. They're very against mandatory vaccination. A lot of the supporters for the party have been the cause of, of some quite nasty vitriol. I mean, there's been protesters who've been showing up mostly at Trudeau's campaign events. Um, there was even a, a situation where some supporters were throwing stones at Trudeau, which was heavily criticized by all the party leaders quite quickly. It's a noisy party, but it is relatively small. It does not have that much support. I could see it causing some problems in very tight races in some conservative constituencies, but it's hard to imagine it being that big of a force that would really cost O'Toole many seats. And it sounds like just from listening um, to you just then, but also over the over the course of this podcast, I think, and this goes back to what Ido asked earlier. Um, it, it just sounds like the far right or the, the the hard right, whatever you want to call it, is not ascendant in a way that some predicted during the Trump era. Do you think that's that's fair? Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think it is a, a big force at, really at all. It's it's tough to tell because in the case of lots of countries, it is often the noisiest and it gets mm-hmm. a lot of attention, but. Just because the voice is loud doesn't mean it's shared. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it could be th- a solo artist, not a chorus. Exactly. So yeah, I can't, I can't imagine it having much impact in the general outcome of the election. Thanks to everyone who sent in your questions. You can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at Jeremy, Emily or me. All right, before we let Megan go, as always, we are going to close by looking ahead to the coming week. Megan, I I think I know what you're going to say you're going to be watching in the next week, but uh, I'll ask the question anyway. What what in the next week will you have your eye on? Well, there's a few elections coming up, but I, I definitely will be, be focusing at least early on in the week uh, on, on Canada's election and then what the outcome could be. I'm going to shock our listeners and say there probably won't be a big upset in the Russian election, but even so some aspects of it are going to be quite interesting. This is probably the most tightly controlled Duma election that has been in history and people have started voting today. But there, there are, obviously there, there aren't going to be any upsets, but the extent to which, for example, Alexei Navalny's um, smart voting strategy actually manages to get quote unquote opposition candidates into the Duma and to beat candidates from the ruling United Party will be quite interesting. To what extent those results have to be massaged with electoral fraud so that United Russia get the result that they want and that they're hoping for? To what extent the actual votes influence the outcome is going to be quite interesting. I mean, the the outcome is not seriously in doubt, but whether there can be any actual competition at the margins and in certain constituencies and in certain fields of politics will be very interesting and it's going to tell us a lot about where Russia is going in the future and and how Putinism is developing. And also next week, another thing I'll be keeping my eye on is, of course, the German election, which we have covered extensively at the New Statesman. That's going to be next Sunday on the 26th of September. Of course, there's plenty of coverage at, at, on this on this podcast feed in the New Statesman, Jeremy has written a cover essay on Merkel and her legacy, and particularly her view of history and her her philosophy for the New Statesman this week. So that's uh, that's in print and online. And of course, we'll have plenty of analysis of the result and of of the of the last few days as as we get closer to to, to election day. So definitely be keeping an eye on that. And if you've not checked out the other episodes of the Germany elects 
special series podcast. They are right in this podcast feed. You can't miss them. They're labeled German elects. Those are the ones about the German election. What will you be looking forward to, Emily? Since we did not speak about Afghanistan uh, at all, this podcast, I will I will bring it up now. Um, two things. First, there have been reports either on Twitter or in um, the state and local press about the treatment of the, the conditions in which refugees are waiting at these bases for resettlement, you know, lack of food, lack of clothing. Some members of Congress have already called for investigations. You know, I, and I, the, the sad thing to me is that the one of the people who put out the call on Twitter from Fort Bliss said, which is where he is waiting to be resettled, said, you know, I'm not saying that I'm not grateful, but this is all the food I'm getting and I, I won't get to eat for another 24 hours. And people were like, you are ungrateful. You're how could you? And, you know, these are people who were who had their lives and their families' lives upended and then were abandoned or, or at least had their lives redistributed by American withdrawal. Uh, and so and to call them ungrateful, I think it just really shows the a certain ugliness of, um, of domestic thinking. And then the other thing on Afghanistan that I think is worth watching is that there are reports coming out of Kabul that within the Taliban, the pragmatists and the hardliners are, or the ideologues or, or you know, sort of whatever phrase you prefer, are, are having their differences. And so whether they can manage those differences and how they do, I think will be worth keeping an, an eye and an ear out for. Before we thank Megan, there is an event that we need to mention. Jeremy from our own New Statesman World Review and uh, Michelle Kaczynski from the One Decision podcast are going to co-host a virtual event from New York on the state of strained trans the strand on the state of the strained transatlantic relationship after Afghanistan. So that's a panel of diplomatic experts. They're going to be leading a panel of diplomatic experts on the margins of UNGA, um, and that will be on Tuesday the twenty first at eleven thirty Eastern time, four thirty p.m. UK time. We'll put the link to the event in the show notes and at the episode page for this episode, available at newstatesman.com/world-review-podcast. Okay, now with that, all that is left for us to do is to say, Megan, thank you so much for for joining us today um, to to talk us through the Canadian elections. Oh, thank you for having me. And as I said, Megan is now Senior Editor International at the New Statesman, so you will have to have her back on soon. And I think listeners will be be hearing much more of her from this and um, and other podcast endeavors at the New Statesman. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe, leave a review and tell a friend, preferably all at once. All at once and then tell your enemies and sign up for free to the World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world review. Our producer has been Chris Stone. Thank you for listening and until next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. 
follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.